Well, good morning, church. My name is Josh Carollo. If you are new or a guest with us today, our lead pastor, Steve Thiel, he's on vacation in Texas, and he got to see his oldest son graduate from uh, basic training this last week. And so uh, he's out of town, and so I get the great privilege of coming and bringing to you the Word of God. If you've been attending Christ's proclamation for even just a little while, uh, and perhaps maybe haven't been through a membership class yet, the church's vision statement will still sound somewhat familiar to you because we speak it so often. If you have been attending here for quite a longer period of time, or even if you've been through the membership class, then you for sure will have heard the church's vision statement in one form or another. And it can be summed up in six words, knowing Christ and making Christ known. Or as we so often say on Sunday morning, we exist to know Christ and to make him known. Our vision at Christ Proclamation Church is to see God display his power by saving sinners and sanctifying saints through the the faithful proclamation of the gospel by all people who call proclamation home, all for the glory of God. So this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture that I hope that, and I pray that it will both encourage us and guide us as we seek to put into practice the part of the vision statement that says to make Christ known. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning. And as you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'd like to set the background for you set the stage for you for the letter that we're, the part of the letter that we're going to be reading. If you have the Pew Bible in front of you, 1 Thessalonians is found on page 986. So just to understand a bit of background to the letter that that Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. So in Acts chapter 16... Paul and his companions traveled from what is known today as Turkey to what is today known as Greece. So they sail from Turkey to Greece in order to proclaim the gospel. And after some time of proclaiming the gospel in a city called Philippi, some people believed in the gospel and were baptized there in Philippi. But afterwards, Paul and Silas, they got into some trouble. Uh, They got into trouble specifically for casting out a demon from a girl. And Paul and Silas were dragged to the marketplace They were attacked by a mob. They had their clothes ripped off. They were beaten severely, put into prison, and had their feet fastened to chains in the prison wall. And while in prison, there in Philippi, Paul and Silas were singing hymns at midnight, when all of a sudden there was a great earthquake, and all the prisoners' chains came loose, and the jailer, lo and behold, finds the jail doors open. So you remember, right? This is 2,000 years ago. It's dark. There's no electricity. He's got to call for some kind of light. But the jailer himself, assuming that the prisoners had escaped, when all the chains fell off, he was going to take his own life rather than be executed for misconduct. And Paul cried out with a loud voice for the jailer not to harm himself. And so the jailer and his whole family, right? The jailer doesn't kill himself. Paul and Silas, they've been preaching the gospel, singing the gospel, and this jailer and his whole family end up believing in the gospel. Paul and Silas remained in jail, and when daylight came, the elders of the city of Philippi convinced Paul and Silas to go ahead and leave the jail with barely an apology. Paul and Silas met again with the believers in Philippi, and then they departed Philippi for Thessalonica. 
And this is where we pick up our story this morning. Because while in Thessalonica, Paul explained and reasoned from the scriptures that it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and to rise from the dead. Some people were persuaded there in Thessalonica, but some people ended up being jealous of Paul's message. Those who were jealous, they formed a mob. They set the whole city in an uproar. They tried to find Paul and Silas so they could put them on trial, but they couldn't find them. And so the believers in Thessalonica, they sent Paul and Silas away under the cover of darkness to another city. So with that background in mind this morning, if you will, let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we, had been, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also to share our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed the, to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let me pray for the preaching of the word this morning. Our Father, we come to you and thank you for your word that is in our own language, that we can read, an education, that we can understand it, but yet our eyes of our hearts, the, our ears, we need your Holy Spirit to come and to help us to understand and to apply, to understand rightly, that we may worship you truly and may apply correctly what it is saying to us. And I pray that you would do that for your fame. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you have a handout there in your bulletin and feel free to follow along in the bulletin. We're gonna be on point number one, the context of proclamation. So the book of Acts, it records for us three missionary journeys that the apostle Paul went on. A description of what happened during the second missionary journey is where we get the context that I explained before our scripture reading today. Paul and Silas had endured significant persecution along their journey. So let's read in the text again here in 1 Thessalonians in verse number two, what Paul describes, we're gonna pick up on the words here, look at verse number two with me. Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul endured suffering and had been shamefully treated in Philippi, right? We remember what I described earlier. Dragged to the marketplace, attacked by a crowd, clothes ripped off, beaten severely in public, put into prison, feet fastened in chains in the prison. 
And then here in Thessalonica, they had been in the midst of much conflict, the whole city being set in an uproar and having to be sent out under the cover of darkness. And what we see here specifically in Acts and what we're reading about in 1 Thessalonians 2 this morning is that gospel proclamation will inevitably lead to persecution. Why? Because the gospel, because gospel proclamation is necessarily confrontational. What do I mean by that? Well, I do not mean that our posture or our tone or our attitude has to be one of confrontation. Rather, the content of the gospel message itself confronts people. It confronts them head on. Inherent to the good news is the bad news. The bad news is that people have offended a holy and righteous God who will one day judge them for their sin and that they need to turn from their own path that leads to eternal destruction and make Jesus king over their lives and follow him on his path. The message itself is confrontational. And when people are confronted, they do not naturally like to be told that they're on the wrong path. I know that I don't like to be told I'm on the wrong path. And some people will ignore you. Some people will try to hurt you with their words. Some people will try to hurt you physically. But when you proclaim the gospel, the confrontational nature of the message brings persecution, suffering, and conflict. And when those come, we have two basic choices. Persecution and conflict either cause someone to shirk back or they cause someone to be more bold. Why would someone shirk back? Because they do not want to face, they don't want to continue to face the difficulty that they're currently facing and the adversity that they're facing. And when that is the case, the person becomes a little more hesitant the next time to take a stand in the future. The other option, though, is when we face persecution is to be even bolder. Paul and Silas get in some serious trouble in Philippi. But instead of being hesitant when they arrive in Thessalonica, what is their posture as they move forward in their mission? They have boldness in God. So looking at point 1B, boldness in God. 1 Thessalonians 2.2, I want to read it again. Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Rather than shirking back from proclaiming the gospel, Paul keeps his foot on the gas and continues moving forward with the mission. And it's not as though persecution and difficulty happened in, it's not as though this difficulty, this persecution, the adversity happened in secret. The church in Thessalonica had already, they knew about all of this about Paul. And we know this because we can look and see how many, how many times Paul uses just the word no, K-N-O-W, here in these 12 verses. Verse number one, at the very beginning it says, for you yourselves, no. In verse number two, here in the middle, it says, as you know. Verse five, in the middle, as you know. Verse number 11, in the very beginning, for you know. There are four times that Paul uses even the word no to describe that Thessalon the church in Thessalonica knew that Paul had endured much suffering. Paul's boldness in God in the midst of suffering and conflict was on full display to all the believers there in Thessalonica. And so I wonder about us. I, mean, I wonder about me. And I wonder about us. Am I someone who would continue to keep my foot on the gas in the midst of persecution 
and suffering for the gospel? Am I someone who would continue to have boldness in the face of persecution that is even a fraction of the intensity that we see and hear that Paul experienced? Well, as I've been preparing this sermon, I pray that I am, and I have prayed that you will be as well. And why? Why do I pray for us in this way? Well, because in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus describes four types of soil. And these four types of soil represent four types of people. I'm only going to talk about the part of the parable that relates directly to uh, the sermon today. Seeds of the gospel are sown and they're scattered all over the place. And there's a second type of soil and that soil has rocks in it. The seeds sprout up quickly in the second type of soil, but after sprouting, the plant died quickly. Do you remember how Jesus describes the second soil, the second type of soil person? This person hears the gospel and immediately receives it with joy. And we would think that's great news. But then Jesus says persecution, because of Jesus' teaching, comes into that person's life. And do you know what happens when the persecution comes? Just like the plant under the scorching sun, the person immediately withers away. Easy come, easy go. Immediately receive with joy, but when persecution comes, the second soil type of person stumbles and falls away. So you understand why I pray for us in this way. I pray that we will have boldness in our God that when we face persecution, because following Jesus, we will remain strong. I want us to endure to the end and receive the reward of eternal pleasures and joy in God. So I hope you were asking this morning, okay, so how can I have this boldness in God when I face persecution? What can inspire or fuel someone to the degree that they are willingly and boldly continuing to put themselves in a place of being so shamefully treated by others for the sake of the gospel? What can fuel that? Well, let's look at point number two this morning in your outline, the message of proclamation. Looking at point 2a, the gospel is God's. I want to read three separate verses from this passage this morning, beginning with verse number two. Again, verse number two. Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to, go, to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So what were they declaring? They were declaring the gospel of God. The gospel is God's. Look at verse number eight, just in case you're not convinced yet. So being affectionately desirous of you, verse number eight, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Whose gospel is it? It's God's gospel. And just in case, read verse number nine. Look at verse number nine with me. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God. The gospel is God's good news. The good news that instead of giving every person what they deserve, which is eternal death and separation from a holy, righteous, and just God, God offers eternal life through Jesus Christ to all who believe in Jesus. The gospel is God's gospel. Look at verse number three with me now. Verse three. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. 
You see that? What does this tell us about the origin of the message? Because the gospel is God's, it's correct and not erroneous. It's pure, it's not impure. It's attempting to be wide open about the state of the human heart and the eternal judgment that is coming and not attempting to be deceiving. If the gospel message originated with mankind, then we would try to manipulate people into believing the message so that we can gain more followers. But we're not trying to gain more followers of us. We're proclaiming a message that says the greatest joy a person can ever have is only found in God through Jesus Christ. And when that is the message, the proclaimers are free simply to proclaim it. If that's the message, you're free to proclaim it. And you leave the work up to God and him to bring about the response in the person's life. The gospel is God's good news. And so I hope you're asking, so what? I love the so what question. I hope you're asking, so what? The gospel's God's. What difference does this make for me? Well, this is the first piece of knowing how you too can have boldness in God in proclaiming the gospel message in the midst of persecution and conflict. The gospel did not originate with any of you. It is God's. So when other people question the, the validity or the truthfulness or the sanity of the gospel that you proclaim, you can relax and not take it personally. It's not your gospel. It's God's. So let God do the work through your proclamation of the gospel. You're called to have boldness in the face of persecution. So knowing that the gospel is God's gives us boldness. Also knowing that God entrusts us with the gospel gives us boldness to face persecution. So looking at point 2B on your outline, God is the one who entrusts. God entrusts. So look at verse number 4. God is the one who has approved of Paul and to Paul to preach the gospel. Read verse number four with me. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. God approved Paul, and God then entrusted Paul with the gospel. Because the gospel of God's, he approves whomever he wants to be entrusted with the gospel. But the question is, does God only approve of certain people with the gospel and entrust those people to go out and proclaim his message? Well, listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. You can just listen to it this morning. Through Christ, God has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. The New Testament is clear that if you are a Christian, you've been reconciled to God. And if you've been reconciled to God, then God has entrusted you with the message of reconciliation. This is why Paul says in the very same letter, we can look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Verses 4 and 5, it says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you. And you're like, wait, hold on a second. I thought it was the gospel of God. Paul here is saying, our gospel. You see, God's gospel had been entrusted to Paul. And Paul owned the idea of being entrusted with the gospel. And for us now, we have been entrusted 
with something so precious that the value of our mission goes way beyond the value of our own individual lives. And when we have the perspective that says, I've been entrusted by God himself with the gospel message, then boldness in God grows, especially when we face persecution. We do not shirk back. So the gospel of God is God's, and that gives us boldness. He has entrusted us with the message about reconciliation, and that gives us boldness. And there was one more reason from this passage I want us to look at this morning and point to see that, give, that we can have boldness in God in the midst of persecution. God calls. Looking here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 12. Verse number 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I want to focus on the last part of that verse, which says God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. God is the one who calls people. On the one hand, yes, we have been entrusted with the gospel. And yes, as we'll see more in a minute, we have to be verbal with the gospel. But on the other hand, we are merely the instrument. We are the tool. We are the means that God has chosen for the gospel message to be proclaimed. Ultimately, he is the one who calls. So if you are a believer here today, he is the one who has called you. He is the one who calls all of his sheep, all the elect, and awakens them from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive through a new birth. And when he calls, people respond. So what does this have to do with boldness in God? I hope it's truly apparent to you that the pressure is off you to convert anyone. You cannot awaken anyone from the dead. Mankind is born physically alive, but spiritually dead, and we have no power to awaken a dead heart. But now that we've been entrusted with the gospel message, we are compelled to move forward and to proclaim the gospel with boldness. Boldness in God. The gospel is God's. So be bold when people call you cuckoo for believing in Jesus. God has entrusted you. So be bold in your mission, the mission that is now way more valuable than your own individual life. God is the one who calls, so be bold. Stay calm and proclaim the gospel. So the next question to ask is, what does proclamation of the gospel look like? Well, we're going to look at point three now, the manner of proclamation. Specifically, let's look at point 3a, share the gospel. I want you to hear from verses 1 through 12, just in these 12 verses, the various words that Paul uses. Okay, just listen to them and then think, like imagine what comes to your mind when you hear these verbs, when you hear these words that Paul uses. Declare. Appeal. Speak. Share. Proclaim, exhort, encourage. These are all words that Paul uses here in verses 1 through 12. And at the most fundamental level, the image that should come to your mind is one where a person has words coming out of their mouth. Right? It is hard to declare, right, to declare with no words, right? It just, I mean, you're trying to imagine, 
Right? If you're trying to declare with no words, there's no way. I just try to imagine myself declaring with no words. How do I appeal to someone with no words? It's just not possible. I'm simply making the observation this morning that proclamation of the gospel happens through words. God's gospel should be proclaimed far and wide and to everyone without exception. The invitation to believe is for everyone in the world. We know from Acts chapter 17 when Paul was in Thessalonica that he spent three Sabbath days reasoning from the scriptures. Some were persuaded, some were not persuaded, but he reasoned with anyone who would listen and engage. In addition to his words, right, notice that I say the word in addition to. Right, in addition to his words, in addition to the fact that Paul verbally expressed the gospel message, we also see Paul's description of him sharing his life with those in Thessalonica. So look at point 3B with me. Share your lives. Specifically, we're going to look at verse number 8. So being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, right? That's the verbal part, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Paul so loved the people that he not only shared the gospel verbally, he shared his very self. And how did he share his very self? Well, we can keep reading in the text, verse 9 and 10. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we may not be, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Paul and Silas sacrificed their bodies, their time, their energy, their money. Why? Paul certainly desired for the gospel message to go forth to everyone, but here he seems to say that he had a particularly strong affection for the church in Thessalonica. Why? Like a mother who carries a child in her womb and then gives birth, the mother doesn't feel ambivalent toward that child. The mother feels even stronger affections for that child after birth. And those affections drive her to pour her time and energy and to sacrifice herself for that child's well-being. And in the same way, Paul labored under suffering and persecution and adversity to see these people born again and to see a church birthed. And once they believed, he simply didn't abandon them and move on. But before and after the church was born there, Paul and Silas shared not only the gospel, but their very selves laboring and toiling day and night that their con- because the- and their conduct toward the Th- Thessalonians was holy and righteous and blameless. And so what was the manner in which they shared the gospel? Well, there was both a verbal expression of the gospel and a life expression of the gospel. It was reflected both in their words and their actions. And so if you are a believer this morning and hearing this message today, This is not new information for you. You're not sitting there thinking this is mind-blowing information that Josh is sharing with me this morning. Most likely what you're thinking is, but what does it mean for me to share my life with others? Let's think about that for just a minute. First, sharing your life with others means sacrificing your time. Sacrificing your time. This looks like taking initiative to get together with people that you know need to hear the gospel. 
This looks like being available when others have time and changing your schedule around. So we sacrifice time. Second, sharing your life means that we sacrifice our energy. For some of you who might be more drained by being around people, which is just, that's how God has made us. We just were around people and we get more drained. This looks like you asking God for energy to engage with people that you're already around. For those of you who, are, who work long days, this looks like you asking God for energy to, to be proactively, excuse me, this looks like you asking God for energy to proactively initiate with others, knowing that you're going to be tired. So we sacrifice time, we sacrifice energy. Third, sharing your life means you sacrifice your own desires. This looks like perhaps giving up whatever, watch, watching whatever sporting event that you plan to watch. Or giving up that time at the gym that you plan to go work out. Sometimes perhaps even giving up a meal with your family occasionally. Because you know that person can only get together at that specific time. So we sacrifice our desires. Fourth, sharing your life with others means sacrificing your money. This means that you drive to see them and you use your gas. This means that you take them out for coffee and spend your money. This means you invite people over for dinner and spend the time and the money to buy the extra groceries. So we sacrifice our time, our energy, our desires, our money, and it is a sacrifice. Sharing our lives with others is costly. And our king is worthy of everything and anything we could ever offer to him and his kingdom. And so as I've been preparing this message and praying for you all, the question I'd like to ask is, who has God brought to your mind in the last few minutes that you need to share your life with? Anyone from work? Anyone from school? Who is it that you need to sacrifice in order to share your life with them? Anybody in your neighborhood? Your family? So you know me, I typically like to, like to take a drink in the middle of my sermon with water, if you've been here at all. I have my bo bottle of water right here. I'm actually going to give you a minute. You have a handout or a bulletin, or you have your phone. I've been praying for all of you that God would bring someone to mind. And I'm going to ask you to write down that person's name right now. I'm not going to ask you to stand up and announce it. But I'm going to ask you to think about who has God brought to your mind. And if he hasn't, pray right now and ask God to bring someone to your mind that you are willing to sacrifice this week. And when are you going to do it? Write down who? Write down when. Okay, I got my water bottle of water. Go ahead. Write down who it is and when you're going to connect. Right, let us not be hearers of the word only, but let us be doers of the word. All right, I want us to look at the last subpoint under point number three, point three C, because we're trying to answer the question, what does proclamation of the gospel look like? Point three C, please God, not people. 
So look with me again at verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Then Paul goes on in verses 5 and 6 to actually explain how it was that they spoke to please God and not people. So let's read verses 4 and 5 so we hear the explanation. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Let's pause here in this verse. Because the gospel message, because the message is God's, Because God is the one who entrusts. Because God is the one who calls the dead to life. Paul can have boldness in God during persecution and can continue to share the gospel and his very life. And all of this is done to please God. If he was trying to please people, he would change the message so that no one would be upset with him. If he was trying to please people, He would never experience persecution and difficulty. But because because he spoke to please God, he spoke God's message the way that God intended it to be spoken. And he lived intentionally the way that God intended for him to live by sharing his life with others and sacrificing himself. This is the way that the gospel is meant to go forth. Verbal proclamation, living lives of sacrifice to please God and not please people. We understand our part in the process of proclamation and we understand God's role through our proclamation, but what about results? When the proclamation of the gospel happens, what types of results should we expect to see? Well, we're going to look at point number four in your outline, the result of proclamation. You see, when proclamation of the gospel happens, there are results. There are changes that happen, both in the proclaimer of the gospel as well as those, as well as for those who will hear and believe the gospel. So let's look first at how believers are transformed as a result of proclamation. Point 4a, transformed lives of believers or for believers. Up to this point, I haven't touched on verse number one yet. So let's go back and read verse number one. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. When Paul uses this phrase, our coming to you is not in vain, like if I'm reading through 1 Thessalonians, just as a regular reading, reading plan, when we get to this phrase, our coming to you is not in vain, I expect him to begin talking about the fruit of his ministry there in Thessalonica. Particularly, how many people became believers, and how they turned from idols to serving the living God, and how they rejected the world to follow Christ. That's what I expect to hear as soon as I read, our coming to you is not in vain. But we don't read any of that immediately following verse number one. Instead, what do we read? Well, we've read verse two several times today. We read about Paul and Silas having suffered and having been shamefully treated in Philippi and being in the midst of conflict there in Thessalonica. And we read that despite all that, Paul and Silas still had boldness in God to declare the gospel of God there in Thessalonica. You see, it's not as though choosing to suffer for the gospel is an easy choice. Paul and Silas could have come to Thessalonica and been less bold, taken it a little easier, and I'm not sure about you, but I wouldn't blame them for for taking it easy for a few days. You just got dragged into the city marketplace, stripped down, 
beaten and locked in jail. Perhaps they could have taken a break. But this is part of what Paul means when he says, our coming to you was not in vain. Something done in vain is done in an empty way, having no effect. But their coming to Thessalonica had an effect in themselves. Boldness in God. Proclamation in Philippi led to more boldness in God, which led them to proclaim the gospel in Thessalonica rather than to shirk back in Thessalonica. Paul and Silas were seeing fruit in their own lives as the result of persecution, and it was boldness in God. Their coming to Thessalonica was not in vain. Don't shirk back for proclaiming the gospel simply because you receive pushback or difficulty or adversity. Don't let one person's reaction to you proclaiming the gospel cause you to wither like a plant under the scorching sun shirk back from proclaiming to the next person. Don't let one person's reaction to the gospel prevent you from continuing to build a relationship with that person. Who knows how many opportunities you'll have in the future. Specifically, don't allow your going to the person that you wrote down a few minutes ago be in vain in your own life. Instead, allow the tension, the difficulty, the sacrifice, and the hardship to have its good effect in you and embolden you to have greater trust in God. Less reliance on yourself and a greater desire to keep being intentional with both those who reject what you say and those who have yet, that you have yet to talk with. Let the difficulty have its good effect in you. So Paul and Silas coming to Thessalonica was not in vain in their own lives. And then certainly if we see in the book of Acts, we see in the rest of the letter of 1 Thessalonians, we read Paul and Silas' coming to Thessalonica was not in vain in another way. Point 4b, transformed lives of others. People heard the gospel. They believed. They were grouped into churches and were discipled by Paul and the other leaders. Paul Excuse me, people were born again and entered into eternal life. In this sense, too, Paul and Silas' coming to Thessalonica was not in vain. God called his people through their proclamation. The gospel had its good effect and opened people's eyes to the awesomeness of Jesus Christ. Another way to say it is like this when Jesus' sheep hear his voice, they will follow. We are the mouthpiece, but it, is, and it is, but it is God who calls. And when God calls, those who will inherit eternal life will respond and believe. Jesus' sheep are out there, and now we are called to go and to proclaim and to share our lives, and God will give the results in his own timing. The gospel is God's. It is his good news. It is his message. He is the one who provides a way for undeserving sinners to be saved from the coming wrath. He is the one who calls people into his own kingdom and glory. He is the one who has entrusted the church with the message. And all of this should give us boldness in God to live in a way that pleases him and to live in a way where we are actively sharing the gospel and sacrificially sharing our lives. We do this with friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, and people that you have not yet to meet that this next week you're going to meet. For God's fame, let us sacrifice our time and our energy 
and our time and our money and our time and our desires and our emotional energy and our mental energy. And did I mention the word time yet? Sacrifice our time to be strategic and to plan and then to work intentionally to share the gospel and to share our lives. Why will we sacrifice all this? Because our great and wonderful God has so filled us with joy that we desire for others to share the same joy that we have found. We exist to know Christ and to make him known. May God make us like Paul and Silas who affectionately desired souls to be saved to the point to where they sacrificed themselves for the sake of the gospel. Let me pray for us as we finish our message this morning. God, we confess that we do not love you as we ought and because we do not, we do not love others as we ought. We confess that we do not strive to know Christ like we should. And because we do not, we don't strive like we should to make Christ known. And we thank you that you continue to love us, to fill us with joy. And we pray that you would enable us, that you would empower us to move forward with preaching and proclaiming the gospel and sharing our lives sacrificially. And when persecution and difficulty and adversity comes because of following the Lord Jesus, we pray for boldness. We pray that we would not be like the plant who withers under the scorching sun, but because the gospel is yours and you've entrusted us, we would move forward. We thank you that you have called us. And if there are any here today who have yet to believe in the Lord Jesus, we do pray that they would see and they would taste that you are good. You would open eyes and they would believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.